in my view, kids are in this consumer world and it's not a bad thing to give them more autonomy in it. And the notion that parents as kind of police figures that are going to constantly mediate their experience in this consumer world or in the world in general is, I think, not the way to go. I think better to give them small, safe kind of moments to practice, even though we're not going to be that happy with what they buy. Hi, I'm Jen, and I host the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. We all want our children to lead fulfilling lives, but it can be so hard to keep up with the latest scientific research on child development and figure out whether and how to incorporate it into our own approach to parenting. Here at Your Parenting Mojo, I do the work for you by critically examining strategies and tools related to parenting and child development that are grounded in scientific research and principles of respectful parenting. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes are released and get a free guide to seven parenting myths that we can safely leave behind, seven fewer things to worry about, subscribe to the show at yourparentingmojo.com. You can also continue the conversation about the show with other listeners in the Your Parenting Mojo Facebook group. I do hope you'll join us. and welcome to the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. Today's episode is part of a series that I'm doing on the intersection of childhood and money. A while back now, I interviewed New York Times columnist Ron Lieber on his book, The Opposite of Spoiled, and we do use his approach to several topics related to money. But it seemed to me for a while now that there's a lot more to say on this. So more recently, I interviewed Dr. Brad Klontz on his concept of money scripts, which are the ideas about money that were passed on to us by our parents, and that we will probably pass on to our children as well if we don't critically examine these and potentially make a conscious decision to choose a different path. Another avenue I've been wanting to explore is consumerism, since I come from England, which is certainly becoming more Americanized than many other places, but where consumerism still doesn't have the same force that it does here in the U.S., where buying things to express love or because you're feeling sad or just because you feel like it is pretty much considered a birthright. And now I spent a lot of time looking for someone to talk with on this topic and finally found our guest today, Dr. Allison Pugh. Dr. Pugh is a professor of sociology at the University of Virginia, whose teaching and research focuses on contemporary work and relationships, and particularly the intertwining of culture, emotions, intimacy, and economic life. She's currently a fellow at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, while she writes a book about her research on the automation of work that's historically relied on relationships between people, like the caring professions. She wrote the book Longing and Belonging, Parents, Children, and Consumer Culture back in 2009, in which she studies how children and parents in both affluent and working-class communities in the East Bay area of California, where I live, manage the commercialization of childhood. The book was named by Contemporary Sociology as one of the 12 most influential books on the family written since 2000 and received several awards. A decade later, it remains the seminal work on this topic, so I'm excited that Dr. Pugh is here today to talk with us and help us think through this important topic. Welcome, Dr. Pugh. Thank you so much. All right. So I'd like to start by quoting a few of the very first sentences from the preface of your book. So you say, Ask them straight out, and most upper-income parents will tell you they don't buy much for their children because they have the 
quote, right values. Meanwhile, low-income parents will try to convince you they buy quite a bit because they are not, quote, in trouble. Go into their children's bedrooms, however, and you will find many of the same objects, Nintendo or Sony gaming system, the collectible cards, the Hello Kitty pencils. <laughs> you go on to describe how 9 in 10 Americans feel that children today want too many material things, and 4 out of 5 parents think Americans' overly materialistic society produces over-commercialized children. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so what are some of the popular reasons why we might think this situation exists? Well, the first thing I would say is what is the situation? And the yes. situation <laughs> is that children have a lot of things mm -hmm. and yet Americans are worried about how much children uh, might attach to those things, how much uh, kind of emotional attachment they might feel towards material things. And those two that's why I'm, I'm saying that I'm describing that situation using those two things. They both have the things and Americans are worried about their feelings toward those things. That's the situation we're describing. And why do we have that situation? One issue is the kind of massive uh, influence of consumer culture on Americans generally, not just children, but children and adults. And that's why children have those things. And then the question about like, or the issue about uh, how, Americans are worried about how children feel about those things. That's a different issue. And that reflects our ambivalence towards consumer culture as a culture. We both embrace it and we are worried about it. We are concerned about its impact on our own lives. And we express that concern with our concern around children. That's what I would say kind of writ large. Now, the question about like popular reasons why people think children might be materialistic that is, you know, people are uh, sure that children are just glued to the TV or to their screens and then very susceptible to the advertising that's there, more susceptible than they see themselves as being. That would be the, the number one reason why people are afraid that children are too materialistic. Another thing that you hear sometimes, popular reasons, would be people are pretty sure that other people, other parents, are less able to control themselves than they themselves are. So they're pretty sure that other parents are, you know, kind of opening the spigot and just letting kids have whatever they ask. <laughs> um, and then there's often a lot of generational critique, like, oh, kids today, you know, that would be another kind of popular reason why people are afraid. They're like, oh, kids today, they're more materialistic. They're more screen focused. They're more obsessed with stuff, you know, that kind of thing. So those are three potential reasons why people, those are reasons you hear batted about, like why kids, A, have so much and B, maybe too attached to those things. Mm, it's like we're caught in a, a really difficult bind here, isn't it? We want the convenience of being able to make one click and buy something on Amazon that shows up tomorrow <laughs> whenever we feel like it. But mm -hmm. at the same time, we're so worried about what this means for our children's futures. It's a very difficult position to be in for parents, I think. Yes, I agree. And yeah, my overall kind of conclusion from all of the years of research that I did and talking to people about this subject after is that, you know, the overarching conclusion I would want people to walk away with is something like, you know, be aware that children live in the same culture that you do. <laughs> they do. <laughs> <laughs> and whatever you're worried about for your children, kind of look at your own and what is the kind of modeling that you are doing. Uh -huh. That's kind of the main thing that I come away with. 
Yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks for giving that away early on. <laughs> and so you had mentioned advertising, and I know that advertisements geared towards children isn't a big focus of yours. And so I'm hoping to do a follow up episode on that with uh, somebody else who does really focus on this. But I wonder if you could just tell us briefly before we move on, why do you take a different view on this topic? Right. Well, it's not that I don't think advertising is important. Mm-hmm. Advertising is very important. I'm not, you know, kind of discounting the findings of many, many psychologists and experimental scientists that find that, you know, you show children an ad in an experimental situation in a lab, and then they turn out they want it more later, or, you know, like, there's a lot, not to mention all the corporate research Mm. findings efficacy. You know, they're going to spend, they spend billions of dollars on advertising to children and they're not doing it for their health. They're doing it (laughs) because they believe it to be effective. So it's not that I'm saying advertising is not effective. For me, I was less interested in tracking the effectiveness of advertising than I was in kind of how children, what's the meaning children make of the stuff in their lives when they're out in the real world. What does it mean to them? And so the reason why I didn't focus on the advertising is because I kind of made it a constant. I just assumed all kids are exposed to advertising to some degree. And I did this at a time when I myself had three young children ranging in age to from about, I think it was about three to 10. And my kids, you know, we don't have a TV. We, you know, like all these things. I was doing all these things to, I thought, shelter my children Mm -hmm. from as a good middle-class parent does. <laughs> you know, doing my best. And then, um, and then they're in school or just walking around. Like, they swim in this water just like we do. Mm-hmm. So even if you're doing some things to keep them what you think is sheltered or protected from advertising culture or consumer culture, they get it anyway from a whole bunch of other sources. Mm-hmm. And so that was part of the thinking that, like, you know, advertising is everywhere. But that's almost the, not, that's not the end of the conversation. That's the beginning of the conversation. Like, given that advertising is everywhere, what do we know then? What's next about what to know about the meaning that children make from stuff? That's where I started. I wasn't controlling the effect of advertising because I didn't perceive that that was very possible. I was just like, okay, assuming advertising is everywhere, what next? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that takes us nicely to one of the key themes in your book, I think, which is the balance of needing to fit in, but also not be too different (laughs) from people. So you want to be different enough to express your individuality, which is why you need Nike sneakers, right? (laughs) That have the right logo on the side. So you have to fit in, but you also have to show your individuality. And of course, this exists both on the part of the children that you studied, as well as on the parents' memories of their own childhoods. And whether or not I, as a parent, felt like I fit in as a child, really, can have some profound impacts on how I want to raise my child. And so I'm curious, can you, what can you tell us about the differences that you noticed that were important to children and parents? Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I want to kind of, I want to emphasize a little bit differently, put a slightly different emphasis mm-hmm. on what you are saying, which mm-hmm. is, I found that the, that everyone, I would say, was concerned about fitting in. Mm. And the concern about individuality seemed, I would say, of course, that's going to vary by temperament. So some kids are more concerned with that. But really, that was coming from the parents. So the kids were much more interested in belonging. Hmm. And that's 
that's why I came up with that title. That title says it all. Yeah. It's, longing and belonging. <laughs> it's kids, what's the meaning? If the question is, what is the meaning that kids make of the stuff in their lives? The answer is belonging. And that's actually a really different thing than a lot of research I found thinks. The existing research is like thinking about status and how to be better than, you know, the better than your neighbor or your, you know, in a hierarchy. And actually the kids, and remember, I, you know, I sat with kids for three years. <laughs> you knew these kids really well. I knew them really well. They were three different locations that varied essentially by class. Mm. There was a kind of wealthy public school, a private school, and then a low-income public school setting. And each of these, the kids are using the meaning of the goods and the kind of services that they could buy or that their parents were buying to belong more than to assert their dominance. So it was like, I kept seeing again and again, you know, kids sitting around going, you know, I have a Game Boy, which I realize is a rather dated reference. So (laughs) whatever they're talking about today, I have a Game Boy. And then someone else wouldn't, they wouldn't say, well, I have a Wii or something. Mm -hmm. They would try and trump it. They would instead say, well, I have a Game Boy. Yeah, I have one too. Yeah, I have one too. And it was like, I have one too, or I've done that too, was much more prevalent and much more prominent in the conversations that I was witnessing over three years, then, well, that's for losers and really everyone should have this, mm. you know, or whatever, you know. Now that's the kids' world that I was witnessing. And that was a surprise to me because I had been kind of prepped by the culture, I think, the mean girls trope, you know, the obsession with status that mm-hmm. is in a lot of common, popular culture as well as the existing research. But then you talk to the parents. So I also interviewed parents of the children that I was observing in each location. And the parents were worried like about belonging also, but they were also worried about their kids' individuality, or I should say the affluent parents in particular were most focused on their kids' individuality in ways that the children were less so. And I can talk more about that because that's tied into all sorts of other things about parenting. But that's yeah. the I found in their consumer. And I think from the affluent parent side, that sort of I'm thinking ahead to the college years and the getting into college years. And you've sort of got to show that your kid is different from the other mm-hmm. 50,000 kids who are applying to Harvard, right? <laughs> is, is that a big part of the difference aspect? Isn't that interesting? So I think that's true, but it's mediated through a kind of generalized parenting style of, uh, you know, intensive concerted cultivation that Mm -hmm. I think you may have talked about before on the podcast. So Annette LaRose, really important work diagnosing, you know, what middle class and above parents are trying to do, this concerted cultivation, this figure out how your kids are unique individuals and then cultivate the things that they are going to make them particularly special that are their particular passions that's something that starts at, you know, very young, we'll say toddlers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think is powered by, in my opinion, by rising inequality and the higher stakes of uh, getting into college and which colleges, the college race. Yeah. 
Yeah. So you mentioned uh, Dr. Annette LaRose's work there. And yeah, we have mentioned that on the podcast before. And the term concerted cultivation is is one that she used to describe how parents used organized activities and I guess consumption as well <laughs> to foster their child's talents. And I'm going to quote you on this. You said, from the perspective of upper income parents, knowing children's desires was also part of caring well, of listening, empathizing, and reflecting back to their children, their true natures. So they grew to know and love themselves. Upper-income parents sought to understand their children's individuals, including their desires, as part of diagnosing their individual strengths and weaknesses, the central task of every upper-income caregiver before commencing on the path of concerted cultivation. Plumbing the depths of children's desires was good parenting. And I have to say, <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb here. This statement made me really feel kind of uncomfortable because I see so much of myself and my daughter in it. And there's a lot kind of going on in my personal life right now that I'm struggling with that are related to not really really knowing myself. And I talked to Dr. Carol Gilligan recently about how patriarchy causes women to not really truly know and to use their true voice and men not to know and express their true feelings. And so I do want to help my daughter to know herself and to express herself from a very young age. And we planned a homeschool. And so we're going to have the time and space for her to really know her own strengths and weaknesses and kind of in a way cultivate herself. And, and I think and hope this will help her to live a fulfilling life. But I also see, <laughs> Dr. Leroux is arguing, I'm essentially preparing her to function as an upper middle class white person in society. And of course, the reason I'm able to do this is because I have economic privilege. And so what I'm trying to tease out here is, is it wrong of me to do this in some way? It's okay to say yes. <laughs> I, I you're saying, and I, and I completely empathize with it. And I have a kind of two-part answer. Okay. The first is that what you're describing this kind of seeing another person with positive regard mm -hmm. and reflecting that person back to her or him, mm -hmm. you know, your child, that's part of good parenting. That's part of good caring on some level. Like even the psychologists with their analysis of infant caregiver relations will tell you that, that yeah. this is kind of mirroring yeah. and, and that's part of good care. So on the most fundamental level, the answer is, you know, no, it's not wrong. Mm -hmm. do this. The problem is when it gets kind of activated as entitlement. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that's the direction in which our culture is going. So there's really great work after LaRoe, which was published, you know, 15 years ago or more. There's really great work showing that kids of the middle class versus kids of working class or poor backgrounds, take that, the strengths you could say that they derive from being seen so regularly and mm. so intently by their parents and take it into the classroom and customize the classroom to their needs in ways that accentuate the advantages that they have. You know, it's not just their parents speak more vocabulary to them or that they have more books in the home, but that they assume that they can customize their environment to meet their needs in a way that working class and poor children do not. This is this great work by Jessica Colarco, who's at Indiana. Mm -hmm. There's additional work talking about, you know, kind of the customization of experience that kids take into high school. And may I say, as a college professor, <laughs> get in college, you know, I see these kids, which are my own kids as well, going in and being like, 
you know, I'll just give you an example, you know, like just at the last semester that I was teaching, this girl was saying, oh, I didn't see that the final exam was on this date. And I bought these very expensive plane tickets. Can I get accommodation so that I can take it on another day? You know, Mm -hmm. that's like a classic example of, you know, kind of assuming on some level that you can customize your environment because that's what's been done for you your whole life. And so I'm making a link between recognition or this mirroring that is good care and this kind of message that you can customize your entire environment that leads to a kind of entitlement that I do think is wrong. So somehow our task, I think, as middle-class parents in particular, because we have all this privilege accruing to us, is to somehow convey recognition, convey mirroring, convey that the person you see is a valuable person and these are their contours and you are an individual and this is, you are, you know, this convey this positive regard of who they actually are, but also say, uh, somehow convey a sense of humility and restraint with that. Mm, I love that answer. <laughs> and yeah, the idea that the world doesn't revolve around you and <laughs> that yeah. part of your role in society is to make society better for other people, not just make it better for yourself. Yes, but you can understand. I mean, I, I think it's completely understandable that it's not clear. Like those are different different messages. Mm-hmm. One might be the world, like, I see you in all your uniqueness. And then the second message is, all that uniqueness is fine at home, I guess. <laughs> but <laughs> when you're out there, be a little less unique and get with the masses so that you're not, like, assuming that the world revolves around you, you know? Like, right. it's a different message. Yeah. And that, that can be hard. That kind of subtlety can be hard to convey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And just as sort of a sidetrack here, we talk a lot about middle-class parents and uh, Dr. LaRose's research is is getting a little older now. And she said that low-income parents are not as engaged in concerted cultivation and really use this different approach where they support the development of their child's natural abilities. But some more recent research has observed, and I know that you've pointed me towards some uh, research as well on slightly different topics related to buying food and that kind of thing that support the idea that low-income income mothers actually do engage in a lot of sacrifice, a lot of self-reliance and protection in the absence of really anything in the way of social support and at great cost to themselves. What do you make of that uh, sort of discrepancy? Is it just a question of looking at different populations or a different way of thinking about things since Dr. LaRoe was working on this? Mm -hmm. Well, two things. First, I don't think it's necessarily a discrepancy. And I think LaRoe would definitely agree that the working class parents that she saw had a lot of self of self-sacrifice. Mm. It's not that they weren't sacrificing. They did withhold a lot from themselves to make sure their kids could get a, you know, they could pay rent, they could house them. They could, you know, like they were, they're doing a lot. It's not that they weren't doing self-sacrifice. It's that they thought good parenting was about establishing right and wrong and kind of letting the child kind of come to who they were going to be, kind mm-hmm. of, as opposed to this kind of active cultivation through daily scheduling of activities and uh, stuff like that. But in addition to that slight difference in emphasis, I would also say there has been some changes. What's interesting is this is a hotbed of scholarly research. People are really in this area and have been for the last 10 or 15 years since this book came out. It just started, spawned this enormous 
industry mm. of experiments and surveys and extensive research. And the reason why it's spawned the, so much activity is because people are arguing. And they're arguing about two things. They're saying, is it a cultural difference? Which is what Leroux was arguing. Like that, by which she means uh, working class people had a different, va different values about parenting compared to the middle class people. They mm -hmm. had a different cultural approach to parenting. You know, mm. someone, a, a whole other category of scholars are instead arguing, no, 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 this is about material resources. And if we gave working class people more advantages, you know, more money, more, et cetera, that their parenting would look more like the middle class parenting. It's not culture and that's not a cultural difference. It's material. So yeah. that's a fight that's happening. And <laughs> there is some research suggesting that the two groups are getting closer by two groups, I mean these middle-class and working-class parents. Mm. So the most uh, pithy summary I've seen says that working-class parents, in the kind of parenting they value and what they're kind of doing, like after-school activities, et cetera, working-class parents are moving towards middle-class parents in scheduling kids, in uh, reading to kids, et cetera. They're about where the middle-class parents were 25 years ago. Okay. Interesting. So things are changing. <laughs> and I, I want to pursue this line yeah. of thinking on on the differences between affluent families and parents with less income. But I just, I, I don't want to let drop something you said a question or two ago, where yeah. we were talking about how children are using their possessions as a way to belong, yeah. to indicate their belonging. And it, it just made me feel so sad when you said that. Oh. I mean, it just feels so wrong to me in some way that we need to have physical things that are produced at great environmental cost and great social cost to people in uh, often other countries living in atrocious conditions so mm. that they can make us a Game Boy that we can use to express our belonging in a culture. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, the first is kids will do this with anything. Mm. So actually not necessary that it be a Game Boy. It could I be a stick. Kids, <laughs> right. I do it with rocks that they like gave different, you know, some of them would like, there was a, a kind of fad of painting rocks. In my book, I talk about this puffball fad mm -hmm. that they were like creating out of these little strings or whatever. Like it doesn't have to be a Game Boy. Mm -hmm. They create meaning from the stuff that's around them. And then the others want to join in if it's got enough, I don't know, charisma to it or magnetism <laughs> to it, the game. The others want to join in. And then that creates its own economy of sorts. And so it's not necessarily something that is, you know, has that whiff of tragedy to it that you are sensing. Mm -hmm. The tragedy, I, I agree, though, that when it's attached to expensive goods made in other countries, that, you know, with under terrible labor conditions and, you know, with horrible environmental effects and purchased by working class parents who are just trying to help their kids feel normal at school, mm -hmm. that is a tragedy. That it has is, a whiff of tragedy. <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's a bad situation. And um, so actually in my book and actually in talks that I've given since then, I've been thinking about what's to do. Like if this is something that kids do with anything, but it's been attached to this pretty high priced and damaging consumer economy, what's to do here? And I kind of went down, I, I go down two paths. One is to help people in their neighborhoods and schools, in their small communities, 
control to some degree the meaning of difference and the meaning of sameness. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. So mm-hmm. what that means is if you're in a neighborhood and everyone and like the birthday gifts are getting out of hand or not just the birthday gifts, but the, you know, the party gifts are out of hand. That's something that was happening when I was raising young kids. You can get together as a group and just kind of agree like, okay, actually we're just going to spend X on party gifts or how about we just do, you know, like and kind of collectively decide things. Mm. Similarly with, you know, school uniforms can kind of often bracket a whole area of spending out, you know, take it out of the equation. You know, there's ways in which our communities kind of almost establish sameness that just make, takes a little bit of the heat off of this for kids. That's one path to go down as a group. And I have to say, my research says these solutions are going to be by group. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Ron Lieber describes that too in his book, doesn't he, where he talks about their parents getting together for Hanukkah celebrations and realizing they're collectively going to spend like 30 grand on this. <laughs> or was it bar mitzvahs? I forget. And, and yeah. they re- they decided to set up a fund that the children were going to administer and decide how it would be split among different charities that everybody could participate in whether or not they contributed money. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. I think his work is pretty terrific. Yeah. yeah. So the other thing though is to make difference safer. And mm. that's a much more complicated conversation. (laughs) But also it's one that I think actually, you know, adults benefit from too. Like I'm a real believer in uh, do as I do, kind of like walk the walk is what I think. Like parents and parenting and myself, I'm no exception. We think that we can talk our way through these (laughs) things, through these issues, but kids aren't actually listening that much. They're watching and they're really watching. (laughs) And so if you, if your own life doesn't really include a lot of difference, then how are we to assume that the kids are going to do that too? So are going to look for difference themselves. So thinking about difference, thinking about who your friendship group is and who their friendship group is, thinking about like how it is to walk out and someone else might perceive you as weird or strange, you know, like doing that more and articulating that more, Hmm. I think is actually a powerful parenting tool. Mm, Interesting. Okay. And so to keep going on this point about how parents from different economic backgrounds think about consumerism, because this was another major theme in your book. And I wonder if you can tell us some of the things that you identified among affluent families and parents with less income as well. You mean like the differences between them? Yeah. What were the major ideas that that each of the different groups of parents had about money and and how they were spending it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I found this core similarity among the children. And I was looking at children with vastly different resources. You know, people who spent the summer in Oakland in their tiny little apartment and someone who went to Brazil and Germany in the Mm -hmm. summer. You know, like totally different universes. Mm -hmm the patterns were the same, the wanting to use stuff to belong, et cetera. But among the parents of these children, they really had markedly different ways of talking about spending that showed me that they were kind of, I would say, responding to different pressures. Mm. So the way I captured that was with the term symbolic deprivation and symbolic indulgence. And symbolic deprivation is what I found the affluent parents doing, by which I meant I would 
be talking to affluent parents and they would be saying, you know, we don't spend, I'm not very materialistic. My neighbor, now my neighbor, that's another, you know, like, or, oh, my sister, she's really bad or whatever. You know, like they would have these kind of people that they saw themselves as not as, and were, oh, those people were almost cautionary tales for themselves. And they were kind of trying to hew a different line of honorable parenting that was not materialistic. And then you go into the kids' bedrooms and the kids' bedrooms have a ton of stuff. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like what it was. They had like all of the basics, obviously, but then also all this other stuff. But the parents would like kind of point to particular items that they didn't buy, that other people were buying to tell themselves that they were kind of honorable, as I say, or, you know, not materialistic parents. Mm-hmm. So I had one family that I use as an example They were going to Australia for the summer and, you know, all this stuff. But the kid didn't have a Game Boy. And again, I know that's a dated reference, but like, you know, um, didn't have the electronic thing that all other boys his age in his school had. Mm -hmm. So he had to kind of figure out a path to belonging without it. And a lot of my observations were charting how interesting and adept he was at making those paths. But also the parents' tactic of bringing him to Australia and outfitting him with all this stuff, but then like not getting him the Game Boy as if that was a kind of statement of, I'm not materialistic. I kind of saw that as in some way characteristic of that kind of dimension or that level of parenting. Mm-hmm. Then on the low income side, they did not care about being materialistic. That was not their problem. And that was actually a very powerful transformation that I experienced when I began this research. The research question itself was a middle class question. You know, (laughs) how do kids, you know, how do we handle the commodification of childhood? You know, like that is a middle class question. The low income parents did not care about my question. The kind of parenting they were, their kind of cautionary tale was not the overly materialistic neighbor or sister. It was the person who couldn't provide. It was the person down the street whose kids were neglected or abandoned or, you know, the homeless person or, you know, like they were like, I'm a good provider. And so that's what they were proving. So they did not care about, you know, how much stuff their kids had. So, so their language, what I'm talking to them, they were like, he's got this and that and this and that. And I'm like, oh, my God. And then you go in their bedrooms and they have very little, very, very mm-hmm. little. In some cases, because I was speaking to parents who were quite destitute, the kids would have almost nothing. And they definitely would not have what a middle class family would consider the basics. They wouldn't have blocks. They wouldn't have bikes. They wouldn't have, you know, things that are the first order of business for a middle-class family. Mm. The low-income family wouldn't have those items, but instead they'd have a few of the items that got a lot of conversation at school. So people don't really talk about their bikes at school, but they might talk, or I didn't notice a lot of that, but they might talk about their Wii or their Game Boy or whatever. They talk about their electronic item. They talk about, you know, and that's what these people would have. Mm -hmm. So it was like the mirror opposite of what I saw going on in the middle class families. And so I called that symbolic indulgence because they were doing what they could to prove that they were good providers. And in some cases, they're holding back on their own 
very basic purchases, even rent, but or, you know, food or stuff to be able to afford these kind of big ticket, but I would say also kind of big bang for the buck socially mm-hmm. for their child in school. Yeah. And so those were very different, but yeah, those were the primary differences I saw. Yeah. I, I recall one anecdote from your book about how a mother subsisted on one meal a day for, I think, three months so that she could spend $50 on something that was really important to her child. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And and you summarize these differences so succinctly. And I guess this is why this book got so many flipping awards, because, <laughs> because <laughs> there are so many quotable statements in it. You said affluent overspending is a bad idea, but low-income overspending is indecent. That affluent parents have a responsibility to teach their children restraint, but it is shameful for low-income parents to spend money on toys and branded sneakers when there isn't enough money for food. And you go on to say that uh, to be able to... If I can interrupt. Yes, I please. You're saying that I mean, I hope you realize that I'm saying that as this is what the culture thinks. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> Not what I'm saying. Yes, like I'm yes. Talking about shame and indecency. Yes. I'm kind of saying what the culture is telling these parents, basically. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. And so, yeah, so people buy, again, quote, to be able to create their experiences, their lives, their identities, their very selves. And also that the people that you interviewed spend money on their children to compensate for something, either something amiss in their own lives or something they perceive as amiss in their children's lives. Mm -hmm. And I guess it sort of goes to what we were talking about, about using buying things to belong. You know, is buying things the best way to accomplish these goals? Mm, Yeah. I mean, um, Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I would say that there's a lot of different reasons people buy. And there's been a lot of research that documents all those different reasons. You know, people buy to connect to their child, to make their child smile or feel joy or feel wonder Mm. or feel, you know, like there's a lot of reasons why people buy for their kids. The reasons that kept coming up in my conversations with them, because I was coming from their kids' classroom, maybe these were kind of accentuated in these conversations, or maybe they were able to articulate reasons that we don't hear in other places or in other research. But in any case, I heard mostly parents talking about wanting their kids to fit in. And that, I think, speaks to it's their anxiety about their kids fitting in was so much stronger than I thought warranted having watched their kids. Hmm. Like I watched kids really manage those moments. All kids at some point, no matter how wealthy, (laughs) didn't have the thing or hadn't experienced the thing that everyone was talking about at some point in the school. Like everyone had that experience. It was not something you could protect your children from ever experiencing ever. And kids manage those moments. Like they manage them well. You know, they, they do a lot of different things. And I actually have a whole chapter where I talk about that. So, you know, they they learn a lot about the culture so that they can talk knowledgeably about it, even though they don't own one. That's what I saw. That was so interesting to me. Hmm. Sometimes they lie. Sometimes they borrow some, you know, like they, they just do a lot of different things that suggest they're really good at their own cultures, I would say. Mm-hmm. And of course, their facility or their competence at, at managing these moments is going to vary by child. But I saw a lot of really adept management of these slightly uncomfortable experiences. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, parents were really, this was a motivator for them. So if kids had figured that out, 
and had, you know, would say that to their parents in some way, couch their requests to parents in ways that emphasized belonging. That was a powerful motivator for parents. And, and I saw parents respond in ways that made me think they're working from their own memories of their own childhood, feeling undue shame or just the, those moments where you don't have, where you're feeling left out. Like parents' response to the children's, you know, fitting in motivations or fitting in questions, you know, nagging around fitting in. They responded so quickly and so strongly that it made me feel like, oh, this is responding to something in your own childhood because the kids are actually fine. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, that reminded me of something that you had said in the book where, and just to draw this out more fully, that parents would purchase toys that were otherwise prohibited if their children said they needed something to fit in with their peers <laughs> to participate in their social worlds. Mm-hmm. And yet it does seem as though we're looking back to our childhoods and thinking that I think there was a, a Greek woman in particular in your study mm-hmm. who really seemed to have this experience when she was younger of not fitting in and and possibly even continuing today when her daughter's saying, don't speak Greek to me when you come pick me up. That's mm-hmm. a pretty <laughs> obvious marker that there's some kind of difference there, some feeling of difference, and that we don't want our children to feel as outcasts. And if we can buy something to make that feeling go away, we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I noticed that, you know, so that's, Affluent as well as low-income parents are responding to that. Mm -hmm. Now, some parents were able to say, you are unique, we are unique, we're not like these other people in our neighborhood, you are not like those other kids in the class, we're not buying. Mm -hmm. But those people, the people who could say no on a regular basis were few and far between and were Many more people told me that they said no than actually said no, <laughs> um, just based on what I saw in their, yeah. their bedrooms or saw their kids with. Yeah. So do you think we should say no more often? I guess I'm thinking back to the the child that you mentioned earlier who didn't have a Game Boy, so his parents had the right values. <laughs> mm-hmm. Should more parents be saying no to the Game Boys? And I guess that's maybe a bad example because that child was going to Brazil and Germany and <laughs> all the other places as well. But is this a, a lacking skill in parents? Oh, that's such a hard question. <laughs> My feeling is that it's not a bad thing to say no. Mm. Part of part of my message is, you know, kind of, I would say, postcards from children's world. Hey, I'm watching them and they're doing just fine in those moments. They're, you know, mm. that they're not suffering as much as you think from not belonging. And I, I can't remember exactly what he said, but Ron Lieber, I think, has a very nice way of parsing this moment, which is something like you don't want to be the first to buy, mm-hmm. you know, the last to buy, but yeah. you want to be the two thirds in or something, yep, something like that. Yeah. I can't, I can't remember how he does it, but I th- actually thought that was not a terrible thing. Cause I also, in talking to the parents who could say no, there was this one family that I profile in particular, and they were a refugee family who had recently moved to Oakland and they viewed themselves as separate from their low income neighbors and better. And mm-hmm. they were like, we are, you know, we are not like them. You know, what? Buy you a Halloween costume? Why would I do that? You know, and and so they were had a very hard line, even though they had a lot of affection and care for their kids. There was no doubt that they cared for their kids. 
But their kids had a lot of work to do in the classroom to overcome not having even a Halloween costume, you know, not having even the most basics, even in a low-income environment. So it looked pitiless to me. It looked rough. It looked tough on those kids to me. So mm-hmm. I can, is that my, my American middle-class self saying, oh, but the kids just want to belong? You know, like, it's really a balance. I don't think you want them to be the first, as Libra would say, and you don't want them to be the last, and you want them to be somewhere towards the end. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Although somebody does have to be first. <laughs> somebody has to be first. Don't let that be your child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and I remember that anecdote about the immigrant child, and I think you describe him as picking up something in the store and not even asking for it, just picking it up and looking at it and putting it back and already knowing that there's no point in asking for it. Right. And there was a sort of sadness in that as well. You know, it's it's sad that we have to, me at least, that we have to buy these things with huge impacts to express belonging. But it's also sad to know that this child is seeing something that could help him to belong and he knows that it's not even worth making the request because the answer is going to be no. Right. I mean, I agree. And that's why I, you know, told that story. That's mm-hmm. why I, I let the reader see what I was seeing. Yeah. But I also want to remind us that, you know, how many times we live in a consumer paradise where we're surrounded by things we want and would love to have, maybe, you know, like, so how many times as an adult are you looking at something and then going, hmm, I'm not, you know, can't do that, I'm going to put that back, you know, or whatever, you know, so it's actually not a terrible experience not to look at something and then put it back, mm-hmm. you know, that's not a terrible experience. <laughs> Life will go on. So we see it in all of its points but it's not absolutely terrible. And actually the other thing that I saw him do in the same shopping trip was pick up a magazine about, I think, Game Boys and like kind of leaf through it, Uh. basically picking up the cultural symbols and language so that he could bring that right into the classroom and be like, oh yeah, the latest, no, 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 no. You know, and that that was him learning the culture so Mm -hmm. that he could be more fluent in it, even though he didn't have the stuff. And I should say, again, going back to this theme, like children are not an alien creature, but they actually are just like living in the world that we do. Adults do the same thing. (laughs) So I see my, you know, my husband talk about wine or, you know, like what are the things that is important that you are knowledgeable about and you may not be Uh, spending all that or, you know, you you might not have everything, but you're learning about it so you can talk about it. And whatever is important in your world, you know, sure, some of it's politics or, you know, more highfalutin language, but, but it's also could be consumer goods. We do this as adults also. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And so as we... I I shouldn't even mention this, but those fancy shoes that have red on the bottom... Why do I even know that there's a brand of pump that has red? <laughs> I will never afford those. I will never wear those. Uh-huh. Why do I know about them, you know? Right, yeah. But if somebody mentions them someday, you have some idea of what they're talking about. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so let's look at kind of the other end of the spectrum for a minute before we end on a, a really practical note. I think you mentioned in the book the idea of noblesse oblige, and I wonder if you can describe that term for us and, and then talk about how you see it playing out among affluent families. Right. So noblesse oblige is when, I would say, uh, privilege or advantage group, people who have more money, see that money and privilege as coming with 
obligations to help people who are worse off. It is not generally tax me at a higher rate. (laughs) Things are redistributed or I'm going to pay myself less and, and my lowest paid worker more so that the ratio is less so that we have more equality. It is more an emphasis on, I would say, philanthropy and giving back in a way, but not necessarily taking away from what gives you riches in the first place. So I would say, you know, my radical children and, you know, my leftist colleagues and, you know, people would critique noblesse oblige as not really changing the inequality that makes so much trouble in our society. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, without noblesse oblige, you're left with a kind of, you know, oligarchy of wealthy that feel no obligations to others and don't have that purpose in their lives, uh, kind of structuring their spending and their practices. So some wealthy parents communicate noblesse oblige to their wealthy children and some do not. And you can do that through the kind of consumer practices that you model and you suggest for your children. There's a writer who's really good on this that I would recommend called Rachel Sherman, who wrote a book called Uneasy Street, which is about, she interviewed, you know, the ultra rich in New York City and how they manage parenting as well as other things. And there, it's a really interesting book. Yeah. So I had some people talking about what we owe others and how we do that through what we buy or we're spending and others did not. Yeah. And so I'm thinking particularly of an example of one parent who's saying to her child, you have so much stuff. Don't tell me you need four teddy bears or whatever. There's a kid out there who doesn't have one. I think she's recounting this anecdote to you. And then, of course, my question was, why did we have four four teddy bears in the first place? And Mm -hmm. then the same parent refused to take her child to places where poor people live in Oakland. And she said, I don't want my kids to have to see that much. I don't take them to most places where homeless people are. I'd much rather write a check and deal with it on that level than expose them to anything. And so your summary of this was most of the affluent parents seem to prefer that inequality serve as an abstract lesson in charity and the Mm -hmm. responsibilities of the wealthy rather than as a concrete experience of empathy and what we owe each other as humans. Mm -hmm. I mean, where where do we go with that? Mm, Yeah, I think that's that example and this problem really like crystallizes so much that's a problem right now because, Mm -hmm. because what we have there is a case of ultra responsible parenting on one level. You know, she's trying to help her kids be safe, be protected, be sheltered. She views her, what is good parenting is sheltering them from the, the coarseness, the kind of strife of modern society. And I am deeply sympathetic to that. You know, that's why we have say movie picture ratings, you know, like we don't show them our rated movies. We don't, mm-hmm. you know, like, There's reasons why we shelter children on some level. But on another level, what does not seeing it in your daily life when it's all around, what does that do to the child growing up? And and what does that tell them is their place in the world, this kind of bubble that is okay. It's okay to be in a bubble. So a real tension, so if we think that's wrong somehow, if that's a kind of perversion of the ultra responsibility of the good parent, you know, how do you introduce children to inequality safely? Or how do you do it in a way that doesn't kind of 
dislodge all that they think is secure in the world. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like a conflict between parenting as communicating security and parenting as community as communicating connectedness to others and that and community basically and who is your community kind of mm-hmm. and i am sympathetic to those who want to communicate security especially in a world that seems just rife with insecurity but at the same time i see the real costs in what that does to the child's emerging sense of who we are connected to and who is our community and who is the the distant other mm-hmm. i wonder if the answer is maybe imagining that our children can handle probably just a little bit more than we think they can handle or maybe that we're comfortable with handling ourselves yes i so agree with that that is completely true that yeah. is really true it's us that needs to go out on a limb here not our kids <laughs> yeah, exactly and Part of it, again, I'm simply, there's, there's a gendered issue here that these are kind of women trying to do what they perceive as the job of parenting, you know, as best they can. Mm-hmm. And we need to give that, you know, women are really disciplined for doing parenting wrong on so many different levels. Right. You know? And we need to give them a little more space, mm. to, um, you know. There's also an entire, as I'm sure you know, entire kind of revolutionary movement in favor of free-range parenting, mm-hmm. giving kids more space. And that's not just about disciplining parents. It's also about making our communities more kid-aware. And that applies to not just affluent kids, but also low-income kids, like allowing kids in spaces that that are not necessarily designated as kid only, not compartmentalizing kids, but actually integrating them into mm-hmm. our streets and our daily lives. Yeah. And I actually, for all that I believe in that free range movement, I actually see the decrease in, you know, the fact that we're having fewer and fewer children as making that less and less likely. Hmm. Okay. Kids, it's not that visible in many places now because they're compartmentalized in their universes, kind of in the, in the places that we've demarcated as kids safe. Right. Yeah. And, in the gyms and <laughs> music lessons and all that stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And so I know we're almost out of time here, but I just want to touch briefly on allowances because I know that you're a fan of uh, Ron Lieber's work and I've read his work too. And, and so we actually do use his approach to allowances, which is $2 a week in each of spend, save and give jars. Mm-hmm. And then of course I read your book <laughs> and I, it wasn't until I did that, that I'd fully articulated to myself, which is why I'd started the system, which is because I got tired of the endless nagging to buy stuff. And so you summarized this neatly again for me saying, like rules, allowances were a way to help children consume while also maintaining the ideal of restraint, similarly accomplishing this trick so that parents were ideally left out of the moment of compromise, (laughs) which is exactly what I was trying to do. Um, So are our children learning valuable lessons from allowances? And I guess... Why do I keep asking you to judge my parenting? Is it wrong of me to put this artificial constraint in place, basically to make my life easier? <laughs> I totally hear you. And I wrote that from the heart because I also <laughs> am a believer in kind of just stepping back and mm-hmm. letting them, you know. My view is, no, you're not wrong. Mm-hmm. I, was just, I was just pointing out what we're doing. You know, okay. in my view, kids are in this consumer world and it's not a bad thing to give them more autonomy in it. And the notion that parents as 
kind of police figures that are going to constantly mediate their experience in this consumer world or in the world in general is, I think, not the way to go. I think better to give them small, safe kind of moments to practice, even though we're not going to be that happy with what they buy. Mm-hmm. Kids don't necessarily have the same taste as us, and they're going to express that through their allowance. And by giving them an allowance, you're letting them have a little bit more autonomy. So I'm actually pro-allowance, even though I see it as a little bit of a cop-out in terms of (laughs) um, parents not kind of constantly having that tough conversation with kids about like, you know, what they do or do not buy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And of course, in reading some of your other work where you talk about windfall child rearing, I realized that it's my privilege to know that I'm going to have $6 each week to put Mm -hmm. into these jars, right? Mm Because not every parent has that luxury. No, exactly. That's something I've seen again and again. That's a totally different article, but it felt like a discovery to me. Mm that itself is a statement of middle-classness, but I just wanted to convey this to others that poverty is a problem, like to be sure, not having enough is a problem, but actually one of the things that makes it worse is not how little you have, but how little control over when you have it. Yeah. So when you're living quite close to the poverty line or under it, you things feel like a windfall. You get that seasonal job at Walmart or, you know, your nephew suddenly comes into a gift from something or your child gets something from the grandparent or all of a sudden there's a check from Mm -hmm. the government or, you know, like whatever. (laughs) These different things are not predictable. And it makes this sheer unpredictability is the problem or is like kind of a major problem of poverty that kind of being middle class gives you some protection from because sure, we might have the same kind of waves, but because we have a kind of more basic level of income, you don't feel the waves as much and you can pay for something like piano lessons or Mm -hmm. whatever, like things that require a basic level of consistency. Like I know I'll have X amount next week. And as you say, allowances is a perfect example of that. Yeah. Gosh, money is such a hard topic, isn't it? Thank you so much for helping us to walk through some really difficult ideas and for critiquing my parenting. (laughs) I hope you didn't feel critiqued. Not at all. (laughs) It it was invited. But yeah, for for helping us think through this and make decisions that really align with our values as parents, because I think it's really easy to just kind of fall into something. And as I so clearly have done so many times with allowances just being one example, and then afterwards realizing, realizing this is what I'm doing here when I'm doing this. And, and mm-hmm. so thanks for helping us to, to tease that out and uh, make it really explicit. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So uh, just as a reminder to listeners, all the references for today's show, along with a link to Dr. Pugh's book, which is called Longing and Belonging, Parents, Children, and Consumer Culture, can be found at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash consumerism. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Your Parenting Mojo. Don't forget to subscribe to the show at yourparentingmojo.com to receive new episode notifications and the free guide to seven parenting myths that we can leave behind. And join the Your Parenting Mojo Facebook group for more respectful research-based ideas to help kids thrive and make parenting easier for you. I'll see you next time on Your Parenting Mojo.